and welcome to Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Today, we are going to tackle something that I kind of hint at on a lot of my shows. A lot of times, the topic comes up of how religion kind of plays into and has an impact on our relationships and our sex lives. And today, that's going to be the topic of the entire show. I think in a lot of ways, our our upbringing and just basically the, the way we're told we're supposed to live our lives, the way we're supposed to do things, and the undertones of our, well, like I said, our upbringing and, and religion in general tells us how we're supposed to do things. And it does have an impact on our love lives, our relationships, and our sex lives, whether I think whether people understand it or comprehend it or not. And that's that's what we're going to talk about today. And I have got a guest with me that I think is the perfect person to talk about that. And y'all know how I am. I, I nitpicked off on the person that I think is just right to talk about it. <laughs> so I searched and searched, and I think I've got the person with me. So we're going to talk to Dr. Daryl Ray. And let me tell you all just a little bit about him before I bring him on to talk. Dr. Daryl Ray is the author of four books, and two of them are what we're going to talk about today. The first one is The God Virus, How Religion Infects Our Lives and Culture, which explores the social psychology of religion. And his latest book, we're really going to focus on this one, Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. Don't you all just love that title? (laughs) Okay. He has been a psychologist for over 30 years, practicing counseling and clinical psychology for 10 years, then moved into organizational psychology and consulting. He's been a student of religion most of his life and holds an MA degree in religion, as well as a BA in sociology, anthropology, and a doctorate in psychology. Born in a fundamentalist family and raised in Wichita, Kansas, he was surrounded by religion while growing up. He had a grandfather who preached for 40 years, cousins who were preachers and missionaries, and his parents were missionaries when they retired. You know you know what, Daryl? I was reading this, and your background kind of reminds me of mine. I've got yeah. one side of my family with, like, all ministers. And actually, in the 1600s, there were four brothers that came over from Germany, and they even brought a printing press to print Bibles with them. How about that? <laughs> were, they, were, they, were they Huguenots? They actually were Lutherans. They they brought oh. the printing press. And actually, that printing press in the printing company is like an hour up the road from me. Still, still, no oh, joke. really? That's, a, yeah. that's really cool. No, no kidding. So, I mean, you yeah. know, the, it, it's long line. And what's really, really cute about that is one side of the family was all ministers. And if you look at the pictures of the other side of the family, one of them looks like Jesse James. So I've got the ministers <laughs> on one side, and I've got the outlaws on the other side. So I, I'm a good mix of both. <laughs> well, and, and people okay. Who, people who that know me personally, they're going to believe that. <laughs> so, uh, okay. <laughs> so, so Daryl, it's awesome to have you with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Nikki. I, I think we're going to have an animated conversation. <laughs> so, okay. Well, I could talk for hours on religion and sex, so I'm sure we will. I, you know, I just, I, I think, do you think I'm off base when I say that I don't think people really comprehend the impact that their religious beliefs have on their relationships and their sex life? 
I think it's the most under um, understood component of human sexuality, and it frustrates the hell out of me when I see sex therapists and people in this, you know, sexual academia just totally ignoring religion. And yet exactly. religion's t- teaching us about our bodies from the day we're born. They're telling us we're sinful, we're shameful, we're broken. and All those are, I mean, Adam and Eve, that is a sexual story right there. Most people don't think of it as that, but it's a sexual shame story for women for sure, and among yeah. many other things, of course. And that's just the Western side, not even counting the sexual shame that other religions like Hinduism and Buddhism uh, have. Huge, huge sexual shame stuff. Well, that's so, yeah, the that's the short answer I'm, to your question. Well, obviously, I'm I'm very familiar with the Western side of, of all the religious stuff, but I mean, I, I really liked how so many things in the book. You you also brought out all the Eastern religions. Cause I'm not familiar with that at all, yeah. and and I liked how you had both of those elements woven into the different explanations, and it it really gives such a complete picture of some of these things. And it, it just like I said, I, I I love to learn new things, and I love learning multiple sides of the same thing because it just it gives you such a complete picture and, and complete understanding of different things. So just I, I I haven't I haven't gotten through all of it because it's just I've been so absorbed in trying to like get you know, understand so much of what, what you're presenting here. I've been sharing so much of it. <laughs> good. Well it's always good to hear. <laughs> it, it, it takes so much longer when you're hearing it, you know? But that's good. Yeah. That's good though. Right. Oh, I just gotta say I, I wrote I, I I was I've been interested in sex since I was 12 years old, as most as many of us were, <laughs> and and as I got into academia and as I got into research and and understanding my own sexuality, and then I got into my doctoral work as a psychologist, I started realizing nobody was talking about religion and sex, and that's just surprising. And then 20 years later, 20 30 years later, after I've gone through my doctoral stuff. I go back, say, oh, I'm going to go back and reexamine this, and still nobody has written about it. So as far as I can tell, aside from the religious people themselves, nobody has written a book about the science of human sexuality and religion's impact on human sexuality. So as far as I know, it's a unique, it's a unique book in the, in the world right now. <laughs> that stuns me because, I mean, I, I know very clearly and I have zero doubt what an impact my my religious upbringing had on or has had on my entire viewpoint about sexuality, yeah. not a doubt in my mind, okay? And, and when I went through my coaching training, one of the first things, I mean, I, I immediately knew that I wanted to start writing about it because, I, mean, I mean, I've got 30-some books on the market. So, I mean, obviously, I've done a lot of writing based on my coaching training, and, and I've got a whole lot more I want to write. And, I mean, I, I want to write a book about the, the impact of, of religion and sexuality, and especially geared toward women. Yeah. Because I think yeah. it's something that really, really needs to get out there, and I really want to write, and, and probably more than one. But I, it just it floors me that people aren't addressing it more. I, I, mm-hmm. I, it's not, like, speechless. <laughs> just speechless that nobody's right. addressing it more. But I, I like I said, I, I love the topics, and I, I was I was stunned that, that their topics. You got to know, like, I didn't think about that. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. reading but that's good. Yeah, that's 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 great. But I, I like that you address some some topics very specific to women because it 
there there's so many ways that that religion belittles women and as far as sexuality that definitely is one of the the ways that they do that and i love the right. some of the stuff that you do as far as submission and how that's used against women. But we're, 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 yeah. That's my We'll talk about that. <laughs> so, Good. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's start with what sort of people are going to benefit by reading your book? Every human being on this planet, and unfortunately they can't because they don't read English, but if they could, they'd benefit too. <laughs> here's, okay, here's let's the fact. A little. Let's narrow it down a little bit. Here's the fact. Every person in our culture is impacted by religious sexual norms and ideas. You cannot be in a North American culture without being inundated with shame messages from a very early age. And right. that's really what I want to I want to try to help people understand. You do not know how many messages you're getting from your neighbor, from your parents, from your own children about about your sexuality. And they're right. The school district is teaching shame messages. I mean, when they do this abstinence-only stuff in schools, that is just replete with shame messages about girls are sluts if they have sex before marriage kind of thing. It's horrible what what is being taught in our schools right now. It's horrible what's being taught in most churches. And all patriarchal religions are focusing on the shame women have and the responsibility women have for a certain sexual standard of behavior. That's all religious. And the reason I say that, Nikki, is because I don't know where you are in the book, but I spend a lot of time in the book looking at other cultures' sexual norms, especially cultures that have not been touched by Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, or Buddhism, all those major patriarchal religions. I go out there and I say, now what if there was a culture that has not been exposed to those notions. And what we find is a very different approach to sexuality. Very different. Now, sometimes it's not particularly good. I'm not saying all non-Western contact cultures uh, have good ways about dealing with sexuality. But I, I do look at things like the Moroso culture and the Manganian culture, and they've been fairly isolated from these notions. And they... Women there are much freer in their sexuality. And you look at the Hawaiian culture and see that you could get your head chopped off in Hawaii for eating the wrong food, but who you had sex with, nobody really cared, except if you were the king and queen. Now, the king and queen had some restrictions, but nobody else did. So when did those restrictions start? I've been to Hawaii, and I see they're very Christian out there. It started when Christians came and told them, you know, put your clothes on or God's going to kill you. And three weeks later, everybody starts dying of smallpox. So they believed them and got their clothes on. And that, that's really what happens in what happened in South America. The Spanish invade South America, say you better, you better accept our version of, of Christianity or you're going to get killed, and then smallpox breaks out. So there's a very convincing argument it, uh, to, a, to a non-sophisticated, non-Western culture. And then from then on, the way you the way you keep people infected with that religion, they got infected with the religion by being infected with smallpox. The two sometimes work really well together. And and then the next step is to make sure they all stay infected. And religion's the best way. Teach shame to women. And the Tereno culture in uh, the Caribbean, women were, appears to be, the women were the leaders of the sexual relationships and control. 
until Columbus came along and killed them all. So there's, there's lots and lots of evidence that if you don't have these patriarchal religions around, women are not uh, subject to the shame and, uh, that, that we see in our own culture. So take away, take, away, take away the religion notions in American culture right now. What would that do to sexuality? Where would, where would we go with sexuality if we didn't have Christianity right. telling us we're all, we're all broken from birth? Right. Well, the thing is, the, the whole guilt, shame, and fear is a way to manipulate people. Keep them under your exactly. thumb. Exactly. But if you can teach, and what I, what I try to show in both books, actually, is that religion wants to implement, implicate, uh, infect you with these notions about shame and guilt and but before you've got a rational sense. So you start getting shame and guilt messages when you're, when you're re, uh, two, three, four years old. And, for example, I, my, my grandmother was really, wow, about as anti-sexual as you could be. Uh, we joked that she had sex one time, and that's when my father was born. And she, was, she would get embarrassed at the word sex, and she would get mad. She would spank you if you supposedly did something you shouldn't have sexually. And I remember watching my probably three or four month old baby brother, I'm like six, five or six years old, watching my baby brother get his diaper changed by my grandmother. And he reaches up and touches his penis as almost every boy and girl does when they're six months old. And she slapped his hand away, slapped his heart. And I watched this. Now he probably doesn't remember that, but that's sure a sexual signal starting very, very young. And how many of the listeners have had that kind of sexual signal given to them? How many girls were told, you touch yourself, you're sinful. You you masturbate. Masturbation is wrong. Masturbation is the devil working through you. Many, many people get those messages. That's right. I, uh, I do something in my talks. I've got lots of talks on YouTube, so anybody wants to go see this. It's actually very funny. I start my talks within the first, oftentimes within the first 60 seconds. You know, I have two, three, four hundred people out in the room, and I'll say, how many of you masturbate? And if it's in a, if it's in a college or in a secular kind of setting, a lot of people will raise their hand. But if it's in a religious setting or even close to a religious setting, I'll get almost no hands raised. Now, isn't that? that interesting? Yeah. What would happen if I asked that question inside a Methodist church or a Catholic mass? <laughs> you know, I have actually done that. I've actually asked church groups, do you masturbate? Now, I always say, in, order, in setting this up, I always do this. I say, I masturbate. How many of you masturbate? So I, I self-disclose, you know, I masturbate. I have fun doing it. So I'm not trying to get them to admit something I won't do myself. And, and if they're secular, if they're people who have not been thoroughly infected with religion, you get a lot of hands coming up. But, boy, no Baptist church, no Pentecostal, no Nazarene, no Catholic church. You just don't get hands. Now, does that mean they're not masturbating, or does it mean they're lying? No, it just means they won't admit it. Yeah, right. So here's the deal. Why are people afraid to admit something that they do that's as natural as breathing, practically, and we see it in so many different species what's going on there it's it's shame it's the exactly. the messages that you are broken and sex from the very beginning sex is the way in which 
evil and not and re, and uh, anti-religious stuff gets into you. So they have created a situation in which your own body is your enemy from the day you're born. That to me is very powerful. Sexual pleasure is a bad thing as far as religion is concerned. Mm-hmm. As far as most religions are concerned. Go oh, yeah. back to the Hawaiian culture's religion. Their sexual, or their Manganian uh, culture, or the hot, uh, the uh, Muoso culture, there they value sexual pleasure. The Manganians were famous, and are still famous in some ways. It's a tiny island uh, country uh, among the most southernmost islands in the South Pacific. Uh, and it, it thankfully avoided Western contact for a long time. But when it finally did, of course, the missionaries tried to do everything they could to stop these people from having sex. And it didn't slow them down. Here's a rule they kind of had in the mandating culture. A man has to give the woman three orgasms for every one that he has. Now, isn't that an interesting rule, so to speak? That's an interesting idea. It is. It is. And you're not you're not a good sex partner if you can't as a man you're not a good sex partner if you can't give your partner multiple orgasms and oh by the way nobody in the culture really cares how many sex partners you have in your life and the notion of marriage is uh, is very very loose or you go to the the na culture in China which has been around since at least thousands of years but we do know about it through Marco Polo because Marco Polo visited the culture they have no word for father they have no word for for marriage or husband, because there is no marriage in this culture. People claim that marriage is universal. It's not. Marriage is not universal. There were many. If, if we could go back 10,000 years in time, we would th- find lots and lots of cultures that don't have anything that looks like marriage. And they're, they're functionally the same humans as we are today. 10,000 years is not that long. And we can, almost, we can almost do that by simply going into the Amazon and looking at Amazon cultures right now. The ones that have had almost no contact with the West, very different approaches to human sexuality. But I, I, I digress because I think it's important <laughs> for us to realize that we are in a Western bubble and we don't realize how much Western Christian Islamic culture has infiltrated our notions about what is normal, natural sexuality. And it's so important. Yeah, it's so important for us to get an, a wider perspective of what human sexuality really is. And you can't do that unless you step outside of your Western Christian Islamic bubble. You know what, in, in Chapter 4, it, and this kind of jumped off the page of me, was a, a notation that nowhere in the Bible does it mention monogamy. Yeah. Right. I, I never, I, I never. Shockingly, in all the Bible discussions I've had and all the the sermons I've heard, I've never heard that before. Isn't, isn't yep. that surprising? That's never come up before. It is, because it's a <laughs> uh, it's it's a fairly new notion in some ways. You think about it, the uh, the Jews, pre-Christian Jews, were not monogamous. It was pretty clear. Herod himself had fifteen wives. Now think about this. Jesus, if there was such a character as Jesus, which I'm not even sure he ever existed, but if he did, he lived at a time when a man named Herod was alive, and Herod had 15 wives. Jesus condemned a lot of people. He did not condemn Herod for having 15 wives. There's nothing in the scriptures that condemns Herod. And yet we know that they were 
alive at roughly the same time if if Jesus lived. So isn't that interesting? Uh, if you read a little bit farther in the book, you'll find that I, I actually watch or talk about how Christianity spread throughout the Mediterranean. And there were very, very few monogamous cultures in the Mediterranean at the time that Christianity was starting. So that first two or three hundred years, when the apostles were going out doing their thing and trying to convert people, they were converting they were they would target in in uh, Antioch or in uh, Corinth or places like that. They would try to, of course, get the wealthiest people converted. If you can get the wealthy people converted, then everybody else is going to probably follow. But wait a minute, all those wealthy men have multiple wives. Yeah. Do you see Do you see anywhere in the New Testament that they're converting people with multiple wives? No, they never mention that, do they? Somebody must have edited that book pretty heavily to take all that stuff out. Because Joe Blow, who's a mega millionaire in Antioch, converts to Christianity. Well, what the Christians did then, and this, there's documentation in Tertullian and other of Oregon and some of the early Christian writers. There's evidence in there that what they would say was, okay, Joe, you don't have to throw away your three wives or four wives or whatever you have, but your sons can only have one wife. So they can break the pattern in the next generation. And that's kind of the way Christianity rolled out and to, to kind of force monogamy into the system. But you're right, it's, it's, never, it's never mentioned in the, the uh, Old Testament or the New Testament because the Jews were not monogamous. In fact, it wasn't until the 11th century that Judaism finally outlawed polygamy. You could have multiple wives in Judaism until the 11th century legally. In Christianity, you could have had multiple wives in Christianity until... Uh, the 400s. It wasn't. It wasn't illegal. It wasn't outlawed until about 425 A.D. So you could still be polygamous. Now I'm not an advocate of polygamy or anything like that. I'm just saying Christianity has papered over a lot of history here and edited out a lot of history. That was clear. There were no the Romans. The Romans were monogamous, not the Jews. In fact, the Romans thought the Jews were kind of weird because they liked to have lots of wives. Well, the Romans were monogamous in the sense that the wife could only have one husband, the husband could have lots of concubines, you know, and stuff like that. Of course. You could only have one wife. Yeah, it was clearly a double standard. But so where did this, this all changed, and it changed with some of the early church writers that were so, if you read uh, uh, the, the earliest, one of the earliest of church writers, Tertullian, this guy is the most misogynistic, anti-sexual person you will ever read. You could, he, he is horrible in the way he talks about sex, and even worse, the way he talks about women. And to this day, he is the chief theoretician, if you will, of the Vatican. Catholicism takes most of its theoretical roots right back to Tertullian. So that, that kind of craziness is very deep into Christian theology. Of course, Paul says, you know, you better better to marry than to burn, but, you know, be like me and don't have anybody. I think Paul was probably gay, but, you know, that's another question here. The fact <laughs> is that he said he didn't have a wife, and it was better for not having a wife. Well, that's kind of interesting because you couldn't be a rabbi at that time. You couldn't be called a rabbi unless you were married. I mean, that's the, very, that's the bottom line requirement of a rabbi is to be married. Go look at the Jews today. You don't call somebody a rabbi if they're not married. Now, maybe he left his wife. Maybe she died. I don't know. 
but the fact that he never mentions in his pre previous marital uh, life, if he was, is kind of suspicious. Who edited that out? And I talk a lot about that in the book. There's lots of sexual things in the book that are edited out. Mary being a virgin, that's a sexual notion. I mean, it's also a biological impossibility to have a child after and still be a virgin. But besides that, why is it so important for Mary to be a virgin? Because that her having sex is a dirty act. It's an act of the original sin. So in order to avoid the original sin issue, you have to have a virgin because she's not committing the original sin of sex. That Have you ever heard that before? Yes, I have. Okay. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of people who listen to this probably haven't. So there's a, a big impetus to keep this notion of virginity. And, and even today, we're, we're talking about virginity as if it's like some kind of a biological concept. And it's not. It's a cultural concept. And it's a concept designed to keep women under control and to show women are the dirty of the two sexes. But the Virgin Mary was not dirty because she never had sex, according to Catholic theology. There's a lot of other interesting uh, sexual questions. For example, you couldn't, you couldn't be a, a man of 30 years old in that culture unless you were married, usually, uh, just like bottom line. Well, if you're married, you're going to have children. So what happened to the wives of the 12 apostles? We never hear about them. What happened to all the children of the 12 apostles, all the grandchildren? Somebody edited all those people out of the Bible. Or they never existed in the first place. That's another option. Isn't that interesting? Why do you not talk? I mean, we know who the kids and grandkids of Muhammad are. We, we know, we, can, we got names for these people. Why don't we have names for, you know, the sons and grandsons of the apostles? Because having sex is a, is a dirty act, and you can't have apostles being involved in sexual activity. So you see all this editing out of anything that looks like sexual activity. It's, it's really kind of weird when you think about it. The Bible is asexual. Asexual. That's strange. I never never thought about them, their wives or children, but that, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I uh, went to an Old Testament, uh, I mean, I went to a biblical scholar, a historical scholar, and I said, look, here's my hypothesis about all this. Please look it over and tell me what you think. Am I just off, am I just crazy, or am, have I got something here? And this is a guy who's been studying the Bible his whole entire life. He's got PhD, two PhDs, I believe. And he looked at it and he said, I've never heard this before, and you're absolutely right. I, I did not want to put that book, book put in print until I had some expert saying, and he went back and he said, I, you're absolutely right. There's, there's None of this is in the Bible, and I never thought about why we don't have any record. I mean, we don't even have records in the subsequent writings of Oregon and Tertullian and the early church fathers. They don't talk about the children and grandchildren of the apostles. Paul, James, John, all these people had to have been married, and they had to have had children. And those children would have been uh, the followers of this new religion. And they would have had powerful things, powerful things to say. I mean, look at Billy Graham and Franklin Graham. You've got Billy Graham out there, and Franklin's taken over from him. You see this in every religion. The founders, well, I, children, Joseph, yeah, the same thing. Yeah, imagine the experience they would have had. Yeah, they would have had yeah. things that they wanted to share. 
And Jewish people back then had big families. So if you say the average, the average Jewish man's going to have four sons. Of course, they didn't count daughters back then. Let's say it's four sons times 12 people. That's a hell of a lot of people to write out of the whole Bible. <laughs> it's just mind-boggling. Unless you look at, at it through the eyes of sexuality. But you didn't want me to talk to you about biblical scholarship, I'm thinking. <laughs> Genealogy of the Bible. Man, I, I, got a, I got a friend I got to shoot that over to as soon as we're done. <laughs> Genial- I, yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I got, yeah. It's going to be interesting. I'd, I'd like to see his face actually when he opens up that email. <laughs> All right, that's cool. I'm, I'm going to get a message. I'm, if I get a phone call later and there's like dead silence, I'm going to know it's him. That's <laughs> 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 really cool. <laughs> yeah. They really, they really don't have any explanation. But I think, you know, here's the cool thing. Once you take your blinders off from what, what religionists have told us for years about their Bible and about their religion, and you put on the put on the glasses of human sexuality and ask, where's the human sexuality in the Bible? It really brings up this kind of stuff. Right. Having sex means having a baby. Having a baby through sex is perpetuating this notion of original sin. So now we have to go back and make sure nobody, nobody talks about sex, so we have to edit out all these sons and daughters who are clearly... Um, made through some procreative act and then from then you get you get the notion of celibacy and you get the catholic notion of men not having men and women not having sex if they're priests or nuns that you know comes along centuries later but it's very damaging telling people they can't masturbate telling the most unnatural sex act i hear people talking about you know People are into sexuality and sex positive stuff. And they say, well, you just want to do a natural sex act. Well, I want to tell you the most unnatural sex act I've ever heard of is a priest not having sex for a lifetime. That is, that's about as unnatural as you can get. Humans are not, humans are not made that way. Now, unless you're asexual, in, in which case I understand, but... <laughs> One out of a hundred priests is asexual. The rest of them are masturbating and telling you not to. Yeah. <laughs> and he's feeling really, really guilty about it. Yes. Yeah, and feeling guilty about it. And then what, what do people do with this guilt that they've been taught? You know, uh, the woman that masturbates in the morning after her husband goes to work and feels guilty all day about it. That's a pretty right. big waste of energy and yeah. emotions. And then when her husband comes home and he wants to have sex, she feels so guilty about what she did. She didn't want. She didn't want to have sex, or or you know those kinds of scenarios. I don't know about you, but I have dealt with this my entire career. People's guilt around my colleagues, including someone you've talked to, well, Dr. Marty Klein and Dr. David Lay, good friends of mine, right. both of them. But they agree with me that something like eighty percent of all the sexual problems that come into my office or their office are related to religious training around sexuality. Yes. So if you want to treat sexual dysfunction, you cannot do it without addressing the religious issues. I just don't see how you do it. Right. Eventually you're going to have to. Or or your client's going to have to. I'm not saying the therapist has to be direct about it, but client's going to have to come to grips with the shame. 
shame they were taught in order to get over some of the dysfunction that they feel about in their relationships or whatever. Well, that was, that was the thing with me. I finally realized that a big chunk of what was holding me back and causing me so much trouble was I was being so judgmental with myself and there was all that guilt and shame that was built up that I didn't know what to do with it. It was, yeah, it was right. whole, and I had, I had to give myself permission to get rid of all that. Once right. I did, it was amazing. It's like, you know what? I'm not a horrible, awful person. It's like, right. wow. <laughs> you know, well, and, well and, and you mentioned, one of the things you mentioned too is, because um, I, love, I love the word you, you use, and it's, I, I use a version of this in my, and when I'm on here talking about stuff, you call it the guilt cycle or the police office in your head. And I talk yeah. about that, you know, that little voice in my head. It's a whole mm-hmm. lot quieter than it used to be. I've got it almost totally muted, but not quite. But I'm, I'm, not the person, I'm not the only person that has that. A lot of person has that little police officer in their head telling them these, these things. Yeah, right. You know, and, and religion is what's put it in a lot of people's heads. Society yeah. and religion both have done that. But you want to yeah. kind of explain how that works to people? Yeah, the guilt cycle. Um, I wrote, or write, wrote about that first time in, uh, in my book, uh, The God Virus. When you're, when you're taught that you're body is wrong, bad, sex is bad, or all that, and you're taught to be guilty about it. Well, then, and then the, reserve, the church says, well, you can come back and get forgiveness, because this whole forgiveness thing is very big, in the, especially in Christian theology. So you <laughs> masturbate this morning, and then, you, and then you have to get forgiveness. So you kneel down, and you pray to Jesus, or whatever. Or you read mm-hmm. your Bible, you go to Sunday school, or you go to confessional, whatever the, your particular... Christian approach to forgiveness is because they're all different, but you learn a specific way of getting forgiveness based upon the religion you were taught as a child. So no Baptist goes to a Catholic priest to confess their sins and to tell him I masturbated this morning. They don't do that. The Baptists sit down uh, next to their bed and pray or read the Bible or something. Whereas the Catholic wakes up and masturbates and says, I've got to go to confession today. So each person has got their own guilt pattern. Well, the guilt cycle is this. I, I do what I shouldn't be doing. I go get forgiveness, and then, I, and then I try to avoid that sin again. But being a biological creature, my sex drive bills and bills, and then I masturbate again, or I have sex with somebody that my religion says I shouldn't. Now I'm, I'm guilty again. I have to go back. Well, this cycle builds on itself and feeds itself, and it brings you back to the religion. The guilt cycle is designed to bring you back to the religion you were taught as a child. Exactly. That's, that's his function. So if you're born a Baptist, you're going to learn Baptist guilt, and you're going to engage in the get Baptist guilt cycle. If you're born a Mormon, you're going to engage in the Mormon guilt cycle. Mormons find Baptist guilt cycle ridiculous. Baptists find Catholic guilt cycles ridiculous. But within the construct of that particular, what I call God virus, it makes all it makes sense. That's why I think people should step outside. You know, go to go to a Catholic church. Go to find out about how Catholics get rid of their guilt, and then realize that you look the same to them as they look to you. <laughs> <laughs> we know, and, and I, I know people joke about Jewish mothers and the guilt they do, but I tell you yep. what, every single religion does it just as bad. Yep. I guarantee it. I use the notion uh, we all we here in the West look at Saudi Arabia and uh, 
we joke and we 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 see what they're doing with the religious police. You know, you you can't a woman cannot walk down the street without a man accompanying her. If she does, right. she's going to get her, uh, she's going to get a ticket, so to speak, or maybe even arrested. A woman can't reveal her face in Saudi Arabia without getting arrested by the religious police. Now, those are literally police that are there to enforce the laws of the religion. And they're separate from the traffic cop or the criminal investigator cop. It's a whole different police department, a whole different police structure. Well, that's how, the, that's how Islam tends to enforce its shame messages on, on the population. But, when we, but the Western culture, when we had the Reformation, when Martin Luther declared, so to speak, independence from the Catholic Church, you no longer had that ability to police the population. Until that time, the Catholic Church could burn you at the stake, you know, for having been a witch or whatever else. But with the advent of Protestantism, it was more difficult to keep control of the population and keep them all under the same theological roof. So real quickly, you had Protestants, we had Catholics, we had, I mean, uh, uh, Calvinists, we had Baptists, we had Mennonites, all these groups start sprouting up, and there's no way to control them through the police department, so to speak. So what the genius, the genius that comes out of that is instead of having, having a, a police, the Spanish Inquisition, for example, to reinforce enforce the, the norms of the sexual norms of the culture, you teach people guilt. And guilt goes wherever you go. And that puts yeah. guilt, guilt police inside your own head. Now, in the book, I talk about a spectrum, and I think it's important to understand what's the difference between shame and guilt. That was shame, what I was going to ask you. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Shame is when you are uh, taught – shame is a communal notion. You are, you are taught to uh, a certain level of sexual behavior or certain ideas about sexuality, and they're, they're enforced in the community. And in, his, in a, the, the um, famous story of the Scarlet Letter, you know, getting an A for adultery yeah. put on her clothing, that was a great example of shame. Shame is communal. If you engage in a shameful act, the entire community sanctions you. In some Islamic communities, the, the girl or woman can be stoned to death for having violated a sexual norm in that community. So if you don't have the ability to stone people to death, what are you going to do? Well, that's where guilt comes in. I see guilt and shame on a spectrum, a continuum, if you will, with shame being very communal, guilt being very individual. Now, they do overlap. I'm not saying they don't. But guilt goes wherever you go. So you can be in a totally different city, state, country, and still feel the guilt of masturbating that morning that you would have you were sitting in your own home. Whereas the shame won't be there because that other country doesn't shame. You know, if you're in Denmark, who gives a shit if you're <laughs> masturbating that morning or not or having sex with somebody you shouldn't, quote, be having. So the culture is not built to shame you. And, and that's the true of the United States. Our culture is not built to shame you as much, although there are shaming communities like Jehovah's Witnesses, very shaming, Mormons, very shaming communities. In fact, I talk about it in the book. I saw cults tend to use shame more than mainstream religions. I mean, Presbyterians are not out there telling you you're going to hell for masturbating. But 
Jehovah's Witnesses are, and Mormons very much so. So you got Definitely. you got some some the, the more the more control a religion tries to have over your sexuality, the more likely they are just a cult. And some pretty big organizations I would put into that category because they try to control your sexuality way too much. Now, I think all religions try to control you too much, but I'm talking way out there like the, like the Jehovah's Witness, the Seventh-day Adventist, the, the, even the Catholics. Catholics try to control your sexuality a lot. And, of course, the Mormons try to control a lot of sexuality. Or you wouldn't have yeah. Proposition 8, you know, in California where they're trying to stop gay rights and stuff like that. That's now we haven't even gotten into LGBTQ stuff, <laughs> but lots of lots of stuff to talk about. That's true. One of, one of the issues that really bothers me too is you grow up with all of these don'ts. You don't do this, you don't do that, and and all all of these negatives around sex. Mm-hmm. All of these things you're not supposed to do. Okay, and then you're told, okay, but if you get married, then you can have sex. Okay, yeah. but you still have all these negative things in your head, especially if you're female. You have all these negatives going on. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you never are deprogrammed. Okay, so you're married. Yeah. Now you technically can have sex. You're still not supposed to enjoy it. You know? Right, right, you're yeah. To, you're not supposed to initiate it. You're not supposed to enjoy it. You're just supposed to have sex because your husband wants it. Okay, so... You're you're never, especially as a woman, you're never at a point where you you can have a satisfying sex life. You never are supposed to embrace your sexuality. Yeah. There, there's you never have a way where you can go from all the negativity with sex to anything positive. There, there's no True. segue that I've ever seen, and I there certainly wasn't in in any of of what I saw in yeah. any of the experiences that I had with religion. Yeah. Is that, I mean, is that the same kind of thing that you've seen? Yeah, it's pretty much universal. Among patriarchal religions, we always have to be careful. There's more than simply patriarchal religions in this world. Although Thank patriarchal goodness. religions, patriarchal religions dominate the world. Yeah. Um, so you have to realize that why would a patriarchal religion want to give women such negative messages and control their sexuality? Control. Exactly, right. And you control people through their sexuality. So if you can make a woman feel really guilty about her sexuality, then you can control that person. You can. Uh, I don't quote Richard Nixon very often, but I'm going to quote him right now. He once said, if you've got them by their balls, their hearts and minds will follow, right? Well, That's right. Religion, religion kind of does that. Religion grabs you by your genitals, grabs you by your genitals, both male and female, and makes you feel ashamed of your sexuality. Well, once it's got that in your head at three years old, it's very difficult to get that out of your head at 23 years old or 33. The task that I face all the time is how to get people to re-examine these deeply, deeply embedded notions that have no basis in, in legitimate biological human sexuality, none whatsoever. It's, it's, that, it's that journey... The journey you just described is the one that most people are going through, how to get rid of this stuff. I do tell people the reason it's so difficult to get rid of is because when you were three, two, three, four years old, you were learning, let's say you're North American, you're probably learning English, and you never once in your growing up years asked yourself or your parents, why aren't you teaching me Chinese? 
why don't you take and be German? You never thought about that. Well, the same right. thing goes on for the religion you're being taught. You're being raised as a Baptist. You're being raised as a Catholic, Mormon, whatever. You never st- stop and think when you're four years old, why am I being raised as a Mormon? Why am I being raised as a Catholic? It just doesn't compute. At the same time, you're also not asking questions like, why is this, why is the religion I'm being raised in telling me that my body is dirty and filthy and I, I shouldn't do these? And those things never occur. So you, right. you've learned English, you've learned Mormonism, and you've learned to not masturbate, all in that very early time. And the baby, a, a child does not, a child knows, listen to your mom and dad because there's dangers out there. Don't cross the street. Don't go in the bush because the lion might eat you. Those are good lessons. But what the baby doesn't understand is sometimes the parents have crazy ideas, like there's a <laughs> demon inside the bush, you know, or God's going to punish you if you masturbate. The baby, the child cannot distinguish between a rational, logical, protective notion in the real world and fantasy. And parents, these parents are way off on this sexual fantasy stuff because it comes into, it's, it's brought into their heads as child children too. So nobody examines these notions of sexuality that religion puts on us. And then it, when they do start examining it, it's very, it's painful, it's difficult, it's a long process. Because if I feel like I'm going to go to hell for having masturbated or having three sex partners in my life or 30 sex partners or 50, I don't care how many sex partners you have. If you think you're going to go to hell, that's going to interfere with your enjoyment of your sexuality today. That's it. I'm sorry. I'm talking all and on. So you interrupt me <laughs> if you go. <laughs> well, and, and see, that, that mentality and, and that sort of thing that I was mentioning as far as, you know, they, they never let you get from the, all the negatives that, that have been put in your head to scare you into into submission and to control you and to keep you from having sex, that never being changed over to, okay, it's all right to now enjoy it. You you yeah. never say this from one to the other. That causes people and causes problems in relationships, and people yeah. never make the connection. They don't understand they don't. that if they could segue from, from one mentality to the other mentality, there could be a whole other world in their relationship that's not yeah. there. You know, you're right. missing something and don't realize it. And, right. and that, that connection is a big part of the reason I have the show. That, yeah. I, I'm trying to help people to make that connection. That's one of the reasons I have the show. So well, that's, the purity, that's one of the reasons the, I want to do this. <laughs> so. The purity culture that so many current religions are teaching really impacts people's married life. And there's lots yeah. of evidence, more and more. I'm sure you've seen it in your practice. Couples come in and they just can't function. And, they're, yeah. and they look back at that guilt that they were taught in the original guilt cycle we mentioned earlier from their religion. And just because you got married doesn't mean that guilt's going to go away. I no, just, it doesn't. I, 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 and I'm sure you have too. I've worked with so many people that say I just can't, I just can't engage in oral sex because my, my parents told me it was dirty or filthy and my God says it's dirty or filthy. And so, I mean, what... <laughs> A lot of people think, including myself, it's the second or third best kind of sexual act you can have. <laughs> so why, <laughs> there you go. Why, are you, why are you denying yourself something that's so pleasurable or denying your partner something that's so pleasurable? It's just crazy. But, yeah, the security culture stuff is so insidious. I, I fight that every single day just about. 
Well, or people will be in a relationship with somebody that wasn't raised in such a religious household, and they'll do it to please their partner, but then they're they're feeling the guilt. Yeah. And, and then, then they're dealing with all of that. You know, yeah. I, I do a lot of that sort of thing. You know, I do I did something with a partner, and then I, I had all this guilt afterwards I was feeling and dealing with and, and went through that for yeah. years. You know, yeah. so, right. so, I mean, there's there's all these elements. And, and that's one of the things I, I share a lot of my personal stories on here with people going, you know, I, I want... I want people to understand I've gone through this for years. I understand, and that's why I'm sharing my personal stories. I right. want you to know I do, I do understand what you're going through. I've been there. You know, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying to say I do understand. I'm not saying this is easy, but it's, it's, worth, it's worth the struggle to, to get yourself to the other side of this. It really, right. really is. Now, we've only got about another 10 minutes, but I, I really, really, really enjoyed a survey that you had. So I kind of yeah. want to touch on a few things about that. Um, okay. And is there a way that we can share any part of this with the listeners to let them take a look at this? Yeah, you can share the website or the link. If you don't have it, I can send it to you for sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll make I sure that the link to this. The link, didn't I? Okay. I'll make sure that the link to the survey is on the show page. Yeah. Um, what I'll do is. The replay for today's show and all the information, the links to um, the the book and, and the survey and all of that is going to be um, readyforloveradio.com slash God and sex. How about that? All right. So, Sounds good. Okay. So you can get all the information. But this is, okay. this is a real survey that was done. So you want to tell the audience about the survey and then they can, they can go in and look at it and, and just really interesting information. And I think... The numbers in the survey were not at all what I expected. Let me just tell you that, that the results, definitely not what I expected at all. Religion and the fear that they're trying to instill in people is not having the results, especially with young people, <laughs> not having the results you expect. The parents, you need to take a look at the survey. You need to take a look and be educating your kids. Does the fear factor not working? Okay, go ahead. No, it does not work. <laughs> well, let me say to begin with, my survey is, uh, I mean, I think we did some fun work. It did some good stuff there. But my, our survey is just one small piece of data. There's huge pieces of data out there, far bigger than me. And what we, what me and my research assistant did was uh, uh, did online survey of about over 14,000 people on their sex lives. Uh, now, these people, this was not a random survey. In fact, you can't do random surveys about sexuality. You can't phone people up. Imagine calling a Baptist at 8 o'clock at night. Say, I'd like to ask you a few questions. How often do you masturbate, right? Click. You won't get so. So you have to find other ways to get this kind of information. So um, and, and there are many different ways to get it. Uh, we just chose this particular time. So the, I, I don't even close, have close to enough time to talk about all the survey, uh, Nikki. But the, the main, fo- main thing that we found was people who are raised in very, very religious environments did not get the message about sexuality frequently after they left religion. Once they, once they figured out this religious thing ain't working, that they were able to move on. And that was some, some good news. But what we also found was even when people were deeply in the fundamentalist religion, there's not much difference between when the first child, uh, let's say a child raised in a very Baptist or fundamentalist environment, 
comparing that child with a child raised in a Unitarian environment or even a non-religious environment, they both start masturbating at about the same time. The only difference is the Baptist child feels guilty about it. The other child yeah. doesn't feel guilty about it. They haven't been taught that kind of shame and guilt. The same thing happens when they first start petting. We saw no difference between, or no significance between the Baptist child, you know, when they start feeling each other up and doing everything but, but having sex, and the child was raised in another uh, environment. What the purity culture, um, what the purity research has shown uh, around abstinence only and sex education and all, is no matter what you teach kids, they pretty much are going to do it anyway. Now, there is a difference. We, we found in, in other research, not just ours, but other research has shown that if you teach a child abstinence only and this religious notion about marriage and sexuality and all, they will delay their first sexual encounter by about three months. So we know there's, a, there's an impact. We know if you teach children abstinence only, they won't have sex for three months longer than the kid that wasn't taught that. Now, there is a big problem there. They also don't mm -hmm. use condoms. They don't that, use condoms. That's, that's a big and, thing I found in a lot of the, the reading and research I've done is, is the only real impact is they're not protected when they are having sex. Exactly. And so you get high out-of-wedlock birth rates. You get high, out of, high uh, disease rates among children, teenagers who've been taught absence only. Exactly. We found a lot of that stuff. Another really key graph in that whole survey, and your listeners just should go straight to that graph, so we had the ability to ask people how much guilt and shame were you taught in the religion, your home of origin. And then we're all, on another question, we'd ask what religion were you raised in. And we simply correlated those two. And we found, the, drum roll please, we found the most sexually guilt-ridden religion where the most sexual messages of guilt were given was Not the Mormonism. <laughs> Yep. And right, right behind those were Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and Pentecostals. Now, just a little bit below that were Baptists and Catholics. They weren't quite as strong as the Mormons. But, so we, we have the first empirical evidence that each religion teaches a, uh, a level of shame, but some are more shame-oriented and guilt-oriented than others. What cleared out the other end of the spectrum were the atheists, the Jews and the Unitarians. The Unitarians were about the least guilty of all the groups that we, we tested. They just don't seem to have much guilt. So I asked the question of some Unitarians. I had no idea. I'm not a Unitarian. So I asked some Unitarians, why do you think your church has got less guilt than even, even atheists? How does, how does a church have less guilt than atheists? <laughs> And they told me that they've got this great sex education program that's age-appropriate and sex-positive, been going on for 15 years or more, called Our Whole Lives. And they started at like third grade or something, and parents can send their children to this, and it's like a, a half, four hours every, every two weeks or something. And it's really interactive, it's really positive, it's fun, kids like it. So imagine if you sent your kids to something like this over a period of four or five years, being taught by a well-certified, well-educated sex educator inside of the church. It's right inside the church. That's why Unitarians seem to have the most sex-positive approaches to sex. Really, really was very surprising to me. 
I didn't I didn't know anything about this wow. program. And, and that literally is half the guilt of Mormons. That's that's unreal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do want to I do want to say that I deal with all this stuff in the book uh, that you and I are talking mm-hmm. about. I also deal with it in my own podcast, uh, Secular Sexuality Podcast. Yeah. Well, I I feel confident that we we got a little out of people's comfort zone today. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I hope so, because I want to leave people with the notion that if you're not examining your religious assumptions about sex, you're probably causing, uh, you're probably missing the fact that that causes a lot of your sexual discomfort and guilt and shame. Ah, good point. Good yeah. point. I like that. There you go. Well, and, and I really, I highly recommend people consider taking a look at the book because he covers a whole lot of topics, and, and there may be ones that you just you don't even want to take a look at, but there's some that you really should. Because, it, and like I said, I say this on the show a whole lot, but there's a lot of things that it, you're probably not aware of. And, I mean, one of the things he even says, and who's going to benefit from the books, it, is there's a lot of things that you're not conscious of that, are tied to religious beliefs that are impacting people's relationships. Right. They're just poor. They really, really are. Like I said, I've experienced a whole lot of these in my life, and I know from personal experience that's why I wanted to cover this and have an entire show about this. Yeah. So definitely take a look at the, at the page for the show. I'm going to have a lot more information, a link to the book, and um, I may even put a lot of the information from the table of contents up there just to kind of show you what's covered in the book. So if you go to readyforloveradio.com slash God and Sex, you'll get more information, the replay that you can take a look at, uh, a link to the survey. And like I said, parents, take a look at the survey. You need to see this. There's some yeah. really cool information. So I would want to put one, one challenge out if I could, Nikki, to the sure. listeners. And sure. I, I deal with this in the last five chapters of the book, and that is, if you, we all have fantasies. We all have issues and ideas about sexuality that we want to explore in our brain. If we can't even talk to the person that's most intimate with us, closest to us, the person we're married to or in a sexual relationship, if we can't talk to that person about what's in our own heads, that tells something. You're self-censoring. Now, I'm not saying that the person you talk to has to engage in those fantasies. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying if you can't even talk about it, what's the source of the shame and self-censorship that, um, that stops you from being open about your sexuality with your partner? To me, that's a really bottom-line kind of question. I did that's not prompt him to say that. I say that on here so often, and I did not prompt him to say that. I swear. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I said that. I said, if you cannot... I thought you, I thought you said the check was going to be in the mail, Nikki. <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> I say that so often. I said, you know, if, if, you can't, if you can't communicate your fantasies to your, to your life partner, there is a problem. You really need to consider that. And I'm so glad you said that. Thank you so much for including that. Awesome. My pleasure. Take, Good take to talk to you, that. Nikki. Awesome. And audience, I'll see you next time on... Ready for Love Radio.